if you'd like to turn to the Gospel of Mark, we shall carry on in our study through this incredible book. Again, just to uh, remind ourselves, this seems to be really Peter's memoirs, in a sense, Peter's record of these things. Mark is a, a young man going through various challenges. Uh, we see him going off with Paul and Barnabas early in his ministry and abandoning them halfway through. It seems to be too much for him to take. But then later he hooks up with Peter and uh, seemingly while Peter's in Babylon visiting the the Jewish believers that are there, um, Mark is with him. And that's when Mark seems to ask Peter some questions about Jesus and who Jesus was. As Peter starts to share his first-hand experience of those kind of three and a half years they spent together, Mark kind of seems to go, one minute, let me just grab a pen or a quill or whatever they'd have had. And Mark starts scribbling these things down. And, and that's what becomes Mark's gospel as Mark just sits there seemingly kind of at, at Peter's feet, just so amazed at the person of Jesus. They're just wanting to share with other people. And then later on we find that the rift that had been there between Paul and between Mark I mean, Paul was a very focused individual, just so intent on getting out and preaching the gospel and didn't want any hindrance. You know, Barnabas, on the other hand, was very kind of slow and encouraging and so on. I mean, you know, not to say that, that Paul didn't have those, those characteristics too. We see those things with Paul and Timothy, but later on that, that rift that was there is healed. And, uh, seemingly after the gospel of Mark is written, Paul says, bring Mark, tell Mark to come because Mark's really useful to me. Mark's gospel is becoming so effective in changing people's hearts and minds as they read this account of Jesus. That, that seems to be the context in which we have this. And we've been going through this journey as Mark has been recording all the key points. And we've said a number of times that Mark, it's not a, a complete narrative of all that went on and everything else. It's just snapshots. It's just the little bits that really seem to grab Mark. And what we're looking at, as we go through this chapter 13, which is where we've got to, is the events that took place on that Tuesday um, prior to the crucifixion, just a couple of days before. And Mark recording these things, again, just amazed at what Jesus said and, of course, trying to comprehend the magnitude of what was being addressed. And as we've said already, when we look at Scripture... We're looking so often prophetic scriptures at the future before it happens. As we read in the book of Amos, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. God has already told ahead of time what is going to happen. You know, as we said already, the Bible doesn't predict future events. You know, lots of people in the world will try and have a, a, an educated guess about what might happen. There's all sorts of so-called predictions about the future. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible gives us the future before we've got there. This isn't just a I hope these things might come to pass. This is This is what is going to happen. We just haven't got to it yet. So the Bible actually foretells these future events. So with that in mind, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord. Father, we do just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and powerful. But Father, this is far more than just a a book. And Lord, we can't really separate the written word of God from the living word of God. 
the person of Jesus. Because as we see scripture, as we read, as we study, we see Jesus. And we see him, Lord, on every page. Lord, in complete control of all that has been, all that is, and all that will be. And Father, as we read these prophetic utterances that Jesus gave, Lord, help us to understand, Lord, not just the details and, Lord, the timings, but, Lord, how these things should apply to us. Lord, as Peter said, seeing all, all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we all to be? Oh, Lord, may that be the question this morning as we explore these things. Help us to consider, Lord, what the real impact on our lives should be and how we should respond to the knowledge and the information that we have as we read and study your word together. So, Lord, we give you this time now. Speak to our hearts. Stir us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are, of course, in this portion of Scripture, the Olivet Discourse, the final major discourse that Jesus gives, and this dramatic glimpse into the future. It's the longest recorded discourse as well that we have. And we see that Jesus foretells, we've looked at this over the previous weeks, the destruction of the temple, which took place in AD 70. Of course, at the time Jesus gives that, there were some 38 years in the future, as Jesus records those events. Um, and then the coming worldwide deception, we spent a week just looking and talking about the deception that's coming on the world, but particularly on the church. You know, the church is no, uh, has got no exemption to the deception. In fact, in many respects, the church is going to be caught up, I say the church in general, um, in this deception that's coming, and a very much a parallel of what took place in Jeremiah's day. And then we're talking about the events that must precede Jesus' second coming, and that's really the part that we've now got to. And again, just to remind you, Jesus is giving us just 48 hours or so before he's going to be crucified. This is on the Tuesday of Passion Week. And actually, it's Mark's gospel that allows us really to piece the details together of what we refer to as Passion Week, all the details you can see on the chart there. You know, the timings very much come from Mark's gospel because he gives us an in the morning, they did this, and then in the evening they went back to Bethany, and the next morning they come into Jerusalem and, and so on. So we can actually plot the whole week through from the details that Mark gives us, which is very helpful. So, once again, that destruction of the temple, we've said already the false messiahs that were to come, the deception of wars, rumors of wars and earthquakes. But as Jesus said, those things must needs be. That's going to happen. You know, don't let that trouble you because if you're worried about that, when we get onto the real stuff, it's going to be, well, Jesus spoke about it being the beginning of sorrows. Uh, a lot of things that are going to be coming on the earth. But the beginning of sorrows is also this term that we tend to give to this first three and a half years of a seven-year period of time that is yet to come. The seven-year tribulation uh, that we often speak about. Now, again, the first three and a half years specifically are going to be characterized by a number of things. One of them will be the signing or the ratification of a seven-year agreement, covenant, uh, peace accord with Israel. You know, we, we hear on the news all the time about the problem of peace in the Middle East. You know, and so many attempts have been made by so many presidents and prime ministers and heads of state to try and broker some sort of peace. And nobody's been successful in doing it. But this individual is going to come onto the scene who we're going to be talking a lot about this morning, who's going to agree, ratify this covenant with Israel and the surrounding nations, allowing Israel once again to begin sacrificing, which necessitates their temple being rebuilt. 
So keep your eyes on the Temple Mount and the things that are going on there because very soon I think we'll start to see those uh, things start to happen and the building plans, whatever, will suddenly become, become news. And whether it will be built alongside the Dome of the Rock, whether there will be some other catastrophe and the Dome of the Rock will somehow be destroyed, I don't know. We don't know. Uh, scripture doesn't specifically speak about the details of it other than the fact that the Temple has to be standing before this period of time. So any time now. That's also going to lead on to a worldwide war. Uh, that will in turn lead on to famine and then so on, pestilence and so on from that. And these are the things that Jesus says, and it's given in more detail to us in Revelation chapter 6. And we looked a little bit about that last time. Uh, the coming period of tribulation, as we said, will last for seven years. Specifically, and scripture is always precise, it's uh, 2,520 days, because we've got two periods uh, of 1,260 days. Um, so, it's seemingly, and whether the, the earth will actually go back to a, a 360 day year, I don't know. There's a possibility it might. Now that's going to require some major cataclysmic upheaval um, to change our orbit. Um, but it seems to have happened in the past. In 701 BC, all of the calendars changed. All the ancient cultures worked on a 360 day orbit. And it wasn't because they were ignorant. They understood, they knew. Even the uh, 360 degrees we have in a circle, that comes from the whole understanding that the earth was on a 360-day orbit of the sun. Something changed dramatically in 701 BC, and maybe some other time we can look at more of the information and details behind that. But in the book of Revelation, and always prophetically, we seem to work on these 30-day months. Um, So we have three and a half years uh, 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 divide into these two separate parts. And it's that final seven years, the whole lot combined, of the prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was praying, interceding on behalf of his people, the Jews, and regarding the, the city of Jerusalem. And in the middle of his prayer, particularly when he gets to the prayer about Jerusalem, Gabriel shows up and gives him this incredible prophecy about his people and about his city, about Jerusalem. Uh, detailing everything that really, is, all the important things that are going to take place from then until the Messiah comes. And not just the first coming, but then the second coming as well. And so we've seen already as we've gone through our study, there's two distinct reasons in scripture that we have for the tribulation. One of them is to bring judgment on this world. And Isaiah makes that abundantly clear, and many other scriptures too, that the reason God will bring this time of tribulation is to judge the world. The second reason is to bring Israel back to himself. Through this time of trouble, Israel are going to be forced into a position where they cry out for their Messiah, and they realize that Jesus really is the Messiah. Now, last time we talked uh, briefly about the fact that the church is going to be taken out of the way. Uh, We've got a number of promises in Scripture. We'll look at some in just a moment again. But Israel are going to have to endure this time. You remember we've seen already these promises or that Jesus said about those that will have to endure to the end. That's a reference to Israel, the nation of Israel. Because we have this great promise in Luke's account of this same um, uh, discourse, the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21. Jesus says to the disciples, but you therefore... Sorry, sorry, watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now that's one of just the many references we have in Scripture. 
that this promise is given that those who follow, who trust Jesus, will not go through this time of tribulation. And actually, when you think about it, it makes complete sense. Because what is the time of tribulation? It's God's wrath being poured out on this earth. Well, our sin was all judged at Calvary. People that talk about these things and say, oh, it doesn't really matter, are kind of missing the point. Because it does matter. You see, if we as a church are left on earth during this tribulation, then not only will we be judged at the cross through to Jesus, but we'll be judged again, which makes a mockery of the cross. See, we have to be taken out of the way before God can bring his judgment. And there's a number of examples we have in Scripture, Old Testament models, Sodom and Gomorrah being a very clear one. God couldn't bring that judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah until he'd taken the righteous out, until Lot and his family had left. And they were hurried out of the city so that God could bring the judgment. But as Abraham said in that lead-up, in that conversation that Abraham has with God just prior to this, you know, that the God will not judge the righteous and the wicked because God is a just God. It's far be it from that the God of the, the earth should, should not do right. So, you know, Abraham realized and God agreed and acknowledged to Abraham that he wouldn't judge the righteous with the wicked. And we see it all through scripture. We see the same, of course, with Noah and the whole situation at the time of the flood. That Noah and his family were safely in the ark and the Lord shut the door before he brought the judgment on this world. There's so many ways and examples in the Old Testament we could look at. Another one is, of course, the fiery furnace. We know that Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, wouldn't bow to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up um, to try and glorify himself, this big golden image, 90 feet tall, standing on the plains of, of Shinar, just outside Babylon in Iraq today. And, of course, they don't bow, so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, that's a picture of the Jews. And, of course, Jesus comes alongside us and comforts them in the midst of their their trial. But the question, of course, has always been asked, where's Daniel? Well, Daniel seems to be removed. He's taken out of the way. You see, Daniel wouldn't have been there bowing down. So Daniel's been taken out of the way. Daniel's seemingly a type of the church. God always removes his own before he brings judgment. There's many other examples we could give. <clears throat> but, of course, for the nation of Israel, very different. Because actually from Hosea, we thought, it's, it's in their affliction that they're actually going to seek the Lord. The Lord allows the Israel to go through this time with the express purpose that their eyes will be opened. Mark 13, 13 says, And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now that, yes, is true of the church, but also true of Israel. But then we have the statement, But he that shall endure, endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Again, that doesn't apply to the church. The church doesn't have to endure to the end. Our salvation is not based upon hanging in there, enduring. Our salvation is purely based upon the completed work of Jesus on the cross. But for Israel, as a nation, they have to endure. They have to go to the end. Now, of course, in the same way, each individual Jew will have to accept Jesus as their Messiah to be saved. No exemption there. But they will still have to endure and go through this time. And we have a number of scriptures in the Old Testament that allude to and speak clearly about this time that is coming upon the earth and that Israel will have to go through it. Jeremiah 30, uh, verses 6 and 7, it says, Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Now I know in today's world nothing would surprise us and probably on the 
the headlines soon we'll be hearing these kind of things. But, of course, biologically, naturally, a man does not give birth to a child. And Jeremiah is saying, you know, it, it doesn't happen. He says, but why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness, saying that, you know, the men are looking so distraught. Something's wrong. And then he says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Talking about a time that is not able to be compared with any other period of history. And he said, it is even, and we have this phrase, the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Speaking very clearly of this time that's coming, unlike any other time, it's a time of Jacob's trouble, specifically applying to Israel. But notice, he shall be saved out of it. God will preserve the nation. In Zechariah 12, we have this, verses 2 and 3. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, that all people, sorry, that all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, that all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And speaking of this time when the nations will be united, they will come, they will march against Israel with the intent of destroying the Jews, the nation of Israel. It says, In that day the Lord shall defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And that's setting up for what we call the Battle of Armageddon. The world uses these terms, it's heard these phrases from Scripture, doesn't understand what they mean and what they really refer to. But in Israel, we have the Megiddo Valley. It's a staging point where the nations of the world will gather together, getting ready to launch this attack against Israel, which by that point will have been, who would have fled into the wilderness of Edom. But as part of this, we read in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 12, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And so, the Lord by his grace is going to open Israel's eyes again. As a nation, they will see and they will realize and they will recognize that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and they'll cry out to him. Behold the day cometh, Sorry, behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. For So then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So we need a reference back to the book of Joshua there. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Just a third of the Jews seemingly are going to make it through this time of tribulation. And I will bring a third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. And I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. What a wonderful 
conclusion. A horrible lead up and build up and Israel have got to go through these things and scripture is very clear. God is just in bringing this judgment upon the nation of Israel. God has said a number of times to Israel that they would see receive double for their sins. That doesn't mean times two, that means an exact likeness. Like when you look in the mirror, you see a double of yourself. They will see an exact, receive an exact likeness for all their transgression, all their rebellion against God, for all of the prophets that they put to death, for all of the blood that was shed in Jerusalem. You have to only have to read through the books of Kings and Chronicles to see what a sorry state thing really became before God allowed the Babylonian captivity and so on. And even, of course, in the time of Jesus, they rejected the Son of God. You know, Jesus gave that parable about the landowner. And he sent his servants, and finally he sends his own son, and him they beat and they kill. And Jesus gave that parable specifically, we saw that a few weeks back now, as a remote, as a way of trying to get across the Jewish leadership exactly the predicament. Of course, they still reject in Acts 15, the question is really brought up about Israel and about their future because the church is now by this point in the book of Acts growing and strengthening. And there's this council meeting in Jerusalem asking about the Jews and about the Gentiles and how everything's going to fit together. And so James stands up and says, uh, Simeon also Simon Peter, in reference to him, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And we see that again in the book of Acts, that visit of Peter to Cornelius and this understanding that God was wanting to bring the Gentiles in. And verse 15, James says, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, okay, that after this is the after the Lord has gathered in the Gentiles, I will return. And I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Do you realize we're living in an incredible period of grace, where Israel's eyes have been blinded, so that we can be brought in. Now, the book of Romans, Paul really hammers this and makes it very clear. Romans 9, 10, 11, really important chapters to study. And in our Bible study on Israel in a few weeks' time, we're going to look through a lot of this in detail. But Paul says to the Christians, to us, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Paul says that a number of times. Oh, don't be ignorant. Don't sit in darkness. Don't say, oh, I don't understand it. Oh, it's too complicated for me. Study it. Understand it. We need to know these things. He says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And he says, and this is one of the reasons you shouldn't be ignorant. He says, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Lest you come to some sort of conclusion that is not based upon Scripture. That blindness in part, I'll explain the in part in a second, but blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, they shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. See this promise that God makes to the nation of Israel. That they will be restored. Their sins will be taken away. They'll be washed clean. As Ezekiel speaks a lot about this. And many of the Old Testament prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel particularly, um, but in fact all the minor prophets as well, uh, to some degree or other, talk about these things. Now, it's just this question, 
The blindness in part is happened to Israel. What does it mean by in part? Well, the church was Jewish, started off as Jews. So some of the believers, so some, of, some of the nation of Israel believed, but the rest were blinded. That's what Paul says. He likens it to the days of Elijah, when Elijah thought he was the only one. And God then, after a little while of Elijah doing a little bit of woe is me, um, says, uh, by the way, I've got 7,000 that have not bound the knee. You're not on your own. And it's the same with the church. The, the Lord had reserved some for himself. They became the church. The church started off as a Jewish group of people. And then Gentiles started coming in as well. So the church is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And, but the rest were blinded. So part of Israel believed that became the church. And the rest were blinded. And then it goes on, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved both that which is part of the church now and that which is unbelieving at this stage. Their eyes will be open again. Just so you understand the, the timing as best as possible, this seven-year period then begins with this three-and-a-half-year period of beginning of sorrows. Don't fall under any illusion. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not a, a bad time. It's horrible. A quarter of the earth will be destroyed in terms of the population. It's going to be a dreadful time. It'll be wars, the famines and pestilences and so on. Over this last week, I've kind of learned a little bit more about pestilence and bugs and things. I now understand what the botch is. If you've ever read about the plagues in Egypt, there was one about the botch and nobody seems to know what it was. I think I've discovered it. The first three and a half years are going to be a really horrible time, but that will pay into insignificance to the second period, the Great Tribulation. Jesus speaks about this. Then there will be great tribulation, such as was not from since the beginning of the world. And the difference is that in the beginning of sorrows, this first period, God's judgment on the earth will be in measure. We find that a third of the trees will be burnt up and destroyed. A third of the grass, a third of the, the rivers will be turned to blood. In other words, God will bring judgment, but it's in measure. There's still grace. There's still opportunity for people to repent. And many will. And many will be taken out of the tribulation. And we read this. But in the second period, well, it will become a time where there will be no more restraint. And God's wrath in full will be poured upon the earth. And nobody will be saved in that second period. Now, even those that are saved in the first period do not become part of the church. Okay, scripture makes it seems to make this distinction very clear. If you want to be part of the church, if you want to be part of the bride of Christ, as it's also referred to, you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ before the rapture of the church, before Jesus comes back and takes the church home with him. In John 14, Jesus made it very clear. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the promise of the rapture that John, uh, John records for us, John 14. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4 and so on. The people who miss that opportunity, who go into this time of tribulation, there will be the opportunity for some of them to be saved. But seemingly, it will cost them their lives. They will be martyred at that point. So it's not a good idea to hang on and wait and see because people will be beheaded for their witness and put to death for not receiving the, the mark of the beast and so on. So it's, it's going to be a horrific time. Um, but there will be people saved during that first part. 
So as I said, the church will be raptured at some point before the seven years begins. We don't know how long, we don't know when. Sometime, it could be any time, it could be this afternoon, it would be great if it is. And then at the end of the tribulation, when the tribulation is completed, there will be an interval, specifically actually 75 days from Scripture, from the end of the tribulation to the establishment then of Jesus' kingdom on earth, the beginning of this millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But for this morning, for the rest of this morning, as we go back to Mark's gospel now, we're interested in the events that are taking place right in the middle of this point. Okay, this is where we're kind of focusing now. Now, we move on to verse 14 in Mark. And it says, Mark records, but when, Jesus is speaking, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. And then we have this statement, let him that reads understands. If you've just read that, you now have to try and stay awake and stay with me because we've got to understand this. Let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Right, so, first of all, this doesn't specifically apply to just disciples. It's seemingly a Jewish uh, reference here because of the things that we're going to go on to see. And from Matthew's Gospel, it also makes it very clear that this doesn't apply to the church. This applies to the Jews. Because the disciples weren't alive to be able to see these events that are being described. So the the context here, the you, is the general you referring to Israel. When you shall see, when Israel shall see, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. And we'll talk about this, but ultimately we're going to see an image erected in the temple in Jerusalem. This newly rebuilt temple, some great statue abomination will be standing in the holy place standing where it will not it is when the Jews see that then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains they're going to realize that this agreement this peace treaty that had been established by Antichrist has been broken that it was all a con it was all deception and suddenly the warning is there flee get out of there as quick as you possibly can this is let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house. Don't you haven't got time. Neither enter therein to take anything out of the house. I mean, this really does imply utmost urgency. When suddenly Antichrist turns, as it were, halfway through, he breaks this agreement. The life of every Jew will be in jeopardy. Verse sixteen: Let him that is in the field not turn back again, for to take up his garment. Just run, get out of there. It is woe to them that are with child, to the pregnant ladies, and to them that give suck in those days. I mean, we all know how hard it is to get babies up and washed and dressed and out of the house on a good day. It takes time. You know, leaving the house used to be an easy thing. Now it's not. And the warning here is that, you know, for, for pregnant women, it's going to be a real challenge because they've got to get out of there as quick as they can. And then the one as well, and pray that your flight be not in winter. Now that doesn't apply to the Gentiles, it doesn't apply to us, but it does apply to Israel because some of the roads can quite easily become impassable in Judea in the winter time. We actually find that Matthew adds and tells us also on the Sabbath. Why? Because there was a laws, there's laws, the Torah tells them about how far they can travel on the Sabbath. So pray that it's not on the Sabbath when this occurs. 
It says, for in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. This is a scary verse if you think about it, because if you look back through history and look at all the events that have taken place, the cataclysmic and uh, just world-shaking events, literally, that have taken place, and then we're told that what is coming now is going to be greater than anything. It will eclipse all of those things. And then verse 20 says, and except that the Lord had shortened those days, we see God's grace coming in. God will put a limit to how long this can go on. Because he said, except the Lord shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, who's he speaking of? The Jews. Arrogantly, many Christians read this and assume that it refers to the elect, it must be the church. It's not the case. Israel are referred to as the elect more often than the church. But for the elect's sake, whom he has chosen, he has shortened the days. He's put a limit on the time so that Israel will be able to endure to the end. Now, to understand this more fully, we need to jump back to the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to do for a little while. We need to go back to the book of Daniel. I'd like you just to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Daniel. And firstly, we're going to look in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. I'm just going to read it together. It's an incredible chapter because we're given this vision that Daniel receives, but then we're also given the explanation of this vision. So we're just going to read it together because it's fairly clear. And um, some of you hopefully will know a bit about history, so some of this will make sense. Others, just a lot of this is historical. Okay, so Daniel chapter 8, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel. Okay, so Daniel gets his vision after that which appeared to me at the first. So this is, Daniel's already had a vision, read that in chapter 3, now he's going to get another vision. And I saw in the vision, and it came to pass, that when I saw that I was in Shushan, in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river uh, Ulay. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes and he came to the ram that had two horns which I had seen standing before the river and ran unto him in the fury of his power and I saw him come close unto the ram and he was moved with collar against him and smote the ram and broke his horn and there was no power in the ram to stand before him but he was cast down to the ground and stamped, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came, and, and, sorry, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of them came a fourth, a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the pleasant land. That's a reference to Jerusalem, to Israel. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped 
upon them. Yet he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of the transgression, and it was cast down. The truth, the truth of the sorry, uh, it was cast down. Uh, the truth to the ground, and it uh, practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said. Uh, unto that certain saint which spoke, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? So this is this reference, partly. Transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay. So verse 15 carries on. And it came to pass that when I, even Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as an appearance of a man. So Daniel's kind of had this vision. First of all, we had this ram with, with these kind of two horns, and then suddenly this other goat comes flying across and destroys this ram with this notable horn, and then that breaks away, and we see four others coming up, and then there's, a, there's another one, which seems to be proud and arrogant and so on so verse 15 carry on uh, this daniel sees his vision of a man and verse 16 and i heard a man's voice between the banks of uli which called and said gabriel make this man understand the vision thankful gabriel's on hand and so he came near when i stood and when he came i was afraid and fell upon my face and said unto uh, he said unto me understand o son of man for at the time of the end shall the vision uh, shall be the vision now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And I said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Okay, so now we get the explanation. So there's no guesswork. We don't have to try and interpret it ourselves. It's all given to us here by Gabriel. The ram which thou saw, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, so Daniel's in Babylon. Babylon's the, the ruling power. The Medo-Persian Empire then is going to overthrow Babylon. And so that's the first image we see, this ram with these two horns, the kings of Medo-Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Greece. Now you and I know him as Alexander the Great. Okay, he says, and the great horn is the, uh, that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. Now, that being broken, whereas four stood up for it. And four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Now, from history, you know that when Alexander died at this young age, somewhere around about 30, 33 years old, his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. And just as is being prophesied hundreds of years before the event, so happens that, Daniel, that Alexander died, and his kingdom was divided between his four generals. And, but they didn't have his power, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So now another player enters the scene. And we're told that his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Speaking of the Jews. So this individually is going to come out of the remains of the Greek Empire, is going to exalt himself against Israel and destroy the Jews. And 
It says, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. And notice, and by peace shall destroy many. Okay, so these false peace, of course. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken without hand. The vision of the evening and the morning, which uh, was told uh, of his true, wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And then Daniel says, oh, I fainted, <laughs> that was too much for me. Okay, so that's Daniel chapter 8. Just a, an incredible bit of prophecy looking at what we now know as history. That the Greek Empire overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire, and then after Alexander died, the kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. If we look at this on the map, we find that Cassandra took the area of typically uh, Greece and, and so on. Lysimachus um, uh, took then the area of Turkey. But then the two big players, we have Ptolemy, who was one of Alexander's closest friends and, and confidants. He ends up choosing the area of Egypt. He was offered the whole realm, but he didn't want it. He'd rather be strong in the area that he, he could control. So he takes the area of Egypt and the northern parts of Africa there. And then Seleucus also then took the area of Babylon and Persia. And so we find then that Seleucus and Ptolemy begin this rivalry. And notice what's right smack bang in the middle? Israel. And that's why this is so significant. Now, people sometimes talk about that period of history between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Where typically there's about a 400-year period. And they refer to it as the silent years. It's not true. Because they say that there's no scripture covering that period of time. Well, actually there is. And it's all recorded for us in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is a phenomenal passage of scripture. We've got 135 prophecies in just 35 verses. It's a portion of scripture that critics turn around and say, it has to have been written later. Daniel must have been written much, much later because there's no way he could have predicted all those things and got them right. Well, as we've already said, the Bible doesn't deal with prediction. The Bible reveals the future in advance. And so we realize that what Daniel is giving us or what we have in recording in chapter 11 is a phenomenal breakdown of this battle between the, the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty. And if we look... Over on the um, left-hand side there, you've got the Ptolemies coming down, succeeding each other, and then the Seleucid Empire down that way. So again, just so you know, so the Seleucids were the ones really covering Syria, as we know it today, in that kind of area, and then Ptolemy covering the area of Egypt. So Egypt on the left, as it were, and Syria on the right, and these battles go on, and there's all sorts of intrigue and marrying and sending delegates and all sorts of uh, betrayals and all sorts of things going on fascinating uh, to study that in detail. Let me take you through some of the key points. Um, just as a, an aside, it seems to be during the time of Ptolemy Philadelphus that we have this translation of the Old Testament into Greek, uh, which is sometimes known as the Septuagint, so around about that period of time. Um, the one that we're most interested in is this one at the bottom here, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the one that we were just looking at in chapter 8, who kind of suddenly jumps onto the scene and asserts himself and does this damage to Israel. And he's the one that Jesus makes reference to with this abomination of desolation. Okay, so just bear with me. We'll just give you a bit of history. So Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, let me just so you see him. This is one here. Third up on the bottom there. Very powerful, very influential. Um, but 
He defeated Egypt, so the Ptolemies down south, as it were, and then, as often happens, decided he wanted to expand his empire a little bit further and starts moving north to Turkey. But then he comes upon the new kid on the block, Rome. Rome was then coming to power, and he wasn't really prepared for that. And he spent huge amount of effort and resources trying to defeat Rome and tackle Rome and so on. And in the end, uh, he ends up ransacking one of his own temples, just trying to get some money. Uh, that didn't work. So he then eventually dies, and his son, Seleucus, uh, the fourth, then comes to the throne and inherits his great debt. So he had a real problem. So he decides to put all the taxes up. And as we all know, taxes are not something we like very much, and no different back then. And so he ends up being killed by his own minister, uh, Helodorus. Um, and so that then paves the way for Antiochus. Daniel chapter 11. Now, we're going to be looking at some verses there. It says, and in his estate, okay, so we're talking in his, we're talking about Seleucid, uh, the fourth, in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, strictly speaking, let me just see uh, my notes. But strictly speaking, what should have happened is that the kingdom should have passed to Antiochus, sorry, to um, um, to Seleucus the fourth's own son. But because of this uh, political intrigue and everything else, uh, he was currently imprisoned in Rome, and so the kingdom didn't go to him. And so this individual, Antiochus, then makes a play for the throne. Antiochus uh, the fourth, or also referred to as Epiphanes, uh, interestingly, this, this is the one we're looking at. He's a type of Antichrist, and this is why this is so important. His name in the Greek is translated as the Shining One. That's the same word that we have in Genesis, Nakesh, in Genesis 3, referring to the serpent. Um, so he takes this title for himself, um, which is a very dark and sinister title in sense to take. Again, so history records that this Antiochus then was kind of eccentric, he was unreliable, cruel, tyrannical, typically what we refer to as a despot today. Now we get a glimpse of his character uh, in these things. Again, um, the name, um, also Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, is, also has this connotation of the God who appears or reveals himself. He had this kind of idea of presenting himself to the world as some sort of God. Now think again of what's coming with Antichrist. He's going to do the same thing. Our Bible study on, uh, or the men's meeting on um, Friday evening, it says in the beginning of Ecclesiastes that that which has been is that which shall be. And what we find is that, that all that is coming in the future, we've had some sort of model for in the past. And all we're seeing here is a model in advance. So, so when Seleucus was assassinated, again, as I said, his eldest son, Demetrius, should have succeeded him to the throne, but he didn't because he was being held hostage. Antiochus had been a hostage in Rome, um, and recently been exchanged for his elder brother, all sorts of political intrigue. I'm leaving a little so you've got some notes if you want to read it on the, the web afterwards. But Antiochus was on his way back from Rome when his father died because of this poisoning thing. Um, and so he then dis- he um, ignores the fact that um, his minister had declared himself king. Antiochus, come, Antiochus comes home in peace, not in war, and by using flatteries with Rome and everything else, he obtains the kingdom, just as was prophesied. Okay. 
Um, so Antiochus Epiphanes then becomes not the rightful heir, but he takes the kingdom anyway. Now, Daniel 11.22 says, And with the arms of a flood, they shall be overflown from before him, and shall be broken, yes, also the prince of the covenant. So the they, that's referred to in this verse, are the ones who were overthrown by Antiochus with the help of his supporters. Um, but it wasn't only Antiochus' rivals that were overthrown, but also the Jewish high priest. Okay, so now this gets interesting, because this is what's going on in Israel at this point. So Ananias, who according to 2 Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal books, not scripture, but there's some historical content there, uh, had been conspiring with the Spartans at the time. Okay, and in his place, Antiochus agreed to let Ananias' brother Jason assume the role of high priest. After Jason had agreed to pay Antiochus a large sum of money. So just like it is today, you know, money talks then, it talks now. Daniel chapter eleven twenty four says, He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey, the spoil, the riches, yea, he shall uh, forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time. Some of these prophecies can seem a bit obscure, but when you dig into the history, they make sense, because Antiochus then moves to subdue Lebanon, Phoenicia, Judea. He appointed rulers over these areas, supplied them with the spoils of war that he'd gain, again effectively uh, bribing them to ensure their loyalty to him. And knowing that a war was coming with Ptolemy of Egypt, we've talked about this this bitter conflict that had gone on for many years now, Uh, he was planning to attack Egypt, but also strengthening his borders at the same time, getting ready for this. Verse 25 goes on of Daniel 11, and he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's the reference to the the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt and so on. And with a great army and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they shall feed off the portion of his meat. Uh, so they that feed off the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. So eventually Antiochus marches against Egypt with this large army, captures Ptolemy, um, Philometer, who was then ruling, um, who he then lets stay on as a vassal king, firstly, so as not to cause a problem with Rome, uh, but also because he was actually uh, his cousin. Um, there's all sorts of intermarrying and things that were going on to try and maintain some sort of political stability. One of the reasons Ptolemy IV did not stand was because Antiochus had bribed some of his own men to turn against him. So that phrase about those that had eaten meat with him were the ones actually that were responsible for his downfall. And verse 27, And both these kings' hearts shall be made uh, shall, shall um, be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper for the end shall be at the time appointed. So Antiochus allows Ptolemy to continue as king, uh, and those in Alexandria chose uh, Philometus' younger brother to be king, knowing that, uh, that Ptolemy's own people had rejected him, so they put his son uh, onto the throne. Antiochus sees this then as an opportunity to befriend his cousin for his own ends, uh, and Philometus then was quite happy to play along this pseudo-friendship. So again, they're sitting at the table, they're speaking lies to each other, uh, very much like politics today, isn't it? 
verse 28. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Let me just give you a very quick recap. So Antiochus, through deception, has got the throne of Syria, effectively. He then builds and amasses this army and gets all the other allies alongside, goes down, attacks the Ptolemies in Egypt, for one of a better expression, broader than Egypt, but that, roughly that area. And on his way back then, we have this verse, and this is why this is important. Because he returned to Syria far richer than he'd left. But on the way, he goes via Israel, because that's, of course, the route back home. Because uh, he's heard this false, or they in Israel heard a false report of his death, and they started celebrating. Nobody liked this individual. As far as Antiochus was concerned, that was worthy of punishment. So at that time of point, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or the latter. And then it says, for the ships of Shittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. And so shall he do, and he shall return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Okay, so a short time later, Antiochus once again invaded Egypt, but it wasn't as successful as previously in his first attempt. Um, and the second invasion uh, led to his conquering all of Egypt except Alexandra. And then, again, he makes this another one of the Ptolemy dynasties. He's kind of a vassal king. So while this is taking place, Antiochus' fleet was also captured. Uh, sorry, had also captured Cyprus. Uh, but this then awakens the concerns of Rome. Shortly after, Antiochus was met at Alexander in Egypt by the Roman consul uh, Gaius Populius uh, Lanus, who told him that he must immediately withdraw from both Cyprus and Egypt. So, not happy. He's been so used to conquering, and now Rome is starting to put pressure on him. Antiochus replied that he would like time to think. <laughs> and quite comically, Gaius then consented to his wish. He drew a circle around him and told him that he could take as long as he wanted to think and reach a decision, but he has to decide before he left the circle. In other words, you've got to make a decision right now. Um, so he had the option of either withdrawing from Cyprus and, and Egypt or he was going to be at war with Rome. So he's not happy. Public humiliated, he wants to vent his anger and frustration, so what better place to do it than the people he already despised on the Jews? So on top of this, I've uh, been sent word that Jason, that high priest who'd kind of been uh, appointed by him, um, had been deceived. He gathered an army and marched against Jerusalem to depose um, uh, Menelaus, the Benjamite. So this other individual steps onto the scene who's a Benjamite. He then becomes high priest, which is a direct contribution to the Torah, of course, because it's only the Levites that should be in this position and so on. And then we read, uh, his arms shall stand, uh, and, sorry, and arms shall stand on his pile, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Once again, this is the verse that Jesus is referring to, both one in chapter 8 and this one. Uh, and they shall uh, place the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, so now, this is the bit. In his rage, Antiochus then takes Jerusalem by storm. He kills 40,000 Jews and sells many others, about 10,000 or so, into slavery. Now, just reading from Jake, uh, Finnish, uh, Dake's commentary, he says this, that he boiled swine's flesh and sprinkled the broth in the temple on the altar. He broke into the Holy of Holies. He took away the golden vessels and other sacred treasures. He restored uh, Menelaus to office, against Benjamite, and made Philip... Um, 
uh, a, a Fijian governor of Judah, which obviously upset the Jews anyway, um, and he also prohibited Jewish worship and consecrated the Jewish temple to Jupiter Olympus, and placing a statue of Jupiter in the Holy of Holies. So this is a forerunner of what is going to happen. And Antiochus then um, um, offered swine upon the altar, so pigs on the altar, which of course is an offense to the Jews, the non-kosher, uh, to make the temple desolate of divine worship. So this is what this individual does. So much is prophesied about him, and of course it's just a model of what's coming. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall uh, he corrupt by flatteries. So bribing people and getting people on side. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they shall understand among the people, uh, they shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by uh, flame, by captivity, by spoil many days. Uh, now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. What does all that mean? Well, what we find is that there were many Hellenistic Jews, Greek Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, that become seduced by Antiochus and went as far as worshipping the image that he set up. See, this is why Jesus warns about even the elect being deceived, the Jews being deceived, because it's happened before. Again, this then leads to what you may understand, you may have heard from history, was the Maccabean revolt. lasted for about three and a half years. Antiochus then undertakes total eradication of the Jewish religion. That's what he wanted to do, just like Antichrist will do. And the establishment of a, a Greek polytheism in its stead, so they're worshipping many gods. Uh, and the observance of all Jewish laws, especially those regarding the Sabbath and no circumcision, all forbidden under pain of death. It was a horrible time for the Jews. Uh, and Jewish practices were set aside in all cities of Judea. Sacrifices must be brought to the pagan deities. This is just like it's going to be. So representatives of the crown everywhere, so Antiochus' people, were enforcing these things all around Israel. And once a month they would institute a search um, to see if anyone had a copy of the law. And of course, if they did, they could be put to death for it, and so on. Now, we get to Jerusalem, the 15th of Chislev in December 168 BC in the Jewish calendar. And we read about this, they broke the league that he'd made. This pagan altar, uh, as I said, was built uh, on the great altar of burnt sacrifices. Um, and they stripped the temple of its treasures, as we've already said. They pillaged Jerusalem, 40,000 killed, 10,000 taken to captivity, compelled them to worship. All these things, again, Antichrist is going to do. Forbidden circumcision, crucified violators, and again, the Torah was forbidden. Anti- uh, those references I've just given you there from um, Josephus, uh, from his book, Antiquities of the Jews. Um, on the 25th of Kislev, was actually his birthday, uh, the sacrifice was brought on the altar for the first time. And they offered a swine in every village, and this uh, temple, to, uh, this idol to Zeus, erected his desolating uh, image and so on. Now this then leads to this war that breaks out. I'm not going to give you all the history of this, um, but we have this this family, uh, this uh, this Maccabean family. Uh, Matthias is, is killed, but his sons then carry on the fight. I'm just going to leave these slides if you want to. But Judas Maccabeus is the key one. Uh, it was also referred to as the hammer. Um, he then leads this rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes. And in so doing, eventually they defeat Antiochus, and he's put to death. So they recapture Jerusalem, they rededicate the temple, 
and so on. If you remember the Feast of Hanukkah, all ties in with this because when they get there, there's not enough oil to light the menorah. There's only one day's supply. And so they light the menorah and it keeps burning until they've got enough time a week later um, to get um, more of this special oil, special um, um, recipe uh, to create more. And of course, this then leads to this Jewish celebration, uh, festival of light, sometimes referred to, but Hanukkah. Um, this incredible remembrance of this divine intervention in a sense, the way that God had raised up these people the ones that were strong that did exploits, uh, and so on. So, that's that. And so finally Antiochus is defeated after three and a half years, interestingly, exactly the same time frame as we have in Revelation. Um, In the Old Testament, we've got a number of references to this individual who we see Antiochus as a model of. The seed of the serpent, we find the reference back in Genesis 3. Idle shepherd in Zechariah, a little horn, we've seen in Daniel already. The prince that shall come from Daniel, the willful king. Okay. And by the way, there's 33 references, specific names, titles given to this individual who is yet to come. In the New Testament, there's at least 13 references, but we find he's referred to as the beast, the false prophet, Antichrist, the lawless one. The man of sin, the one, uh, the one come in his own name, and so on. And the son of perdition is another title. Again, he's going to be an intellectual genius. He's going to be a persuasive orator, a shrewd politician. He's going to step onto the world scene and people will follow him. And he's going to have that same kind of sway that Antiochus had, a financial genius, a forceful military leader, a powerful organizer, and a unifying religious guru. All of these things. Some think, and I'm not going to go through the details, some think he'll be a Jew, some think he'll be a Gentile. We don't know. I'm not sure. I'm neutral on that one. I'll let you come to a conclusion if you want. Okay. We will leave it there because that gets us then to the last part of this tribulation. I'm sorry it's been long and there's a lot of history in that. But what I want to show you is that Daniel had recorded all of these things. We've already got a model in place of all that is coming. And we are so close to it now. You know, this is going to go on to talk about the other deceptions that are coming. The problems that are are going to be experienced. But eventually, as we've seen... Jesus will come back. He will deliver the Jews from this oppression. No, it won't be some army as it was with Judas Maccabees and so on. This is going to be Jesus Christ this time. He's going to come back and deliver his people and put an end to Satan's plan to dominate and rule this world. Let's uh, leave it there. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father, we do just have to step back in awe that in your word you have recorded all of these things Father the world is so oblivious to what we have here Father you've given us the future Lord some of the the most important events that this world will ever witness and experience Lord are recorded ahead of time and Father you've given us a model already of what will happen Father what we do know from this is that you are in complete control Father, we do know that you will ensure that the Jews are preserved. They'll not be destroyed because, Lord, they're your people. You chose them. You've appointed them. And yes, they've been disobedient, but, Lord, 
you made a promise that was unconditional to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Lord, you reiterated that promise and made a covenant with David. The Lord, one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. And Jesus Christ, you are the one who will sit on the throne of David. Lord, thank you for these things. Help us to not just understand the details, but Lord, live our lives with a sense of urgency. Because these things are coming. But Lord, it could be soon that you return and take your church. It could be today that we may see your face. And Lord, our opportunity to talk to unsaved loved ones and relatives and friends and colleagues will then be gone. So Father, I pray you install in each of us a sense of urgency, a sense of boldness, just to speak the truth in love, but to share the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things this morning in your precious name. Amen.